You're tuned into the Chug LLP's podcast. We are a full-service legal, immigration, and tax firm with a global outlook. We partner with businesses to deliver innovative, customized solutions to their most pressing challenges. Join us as we tackle some pertinent issues. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Ariana Gonzalez tuning in from our San Diego office, and joining me today is partner and attorney Dia Matthews from our Edison, New Jersey office. Hi there, Dia, and welcome. Hey, thanks, Ariana. Good to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time. For today's topic, we're going to be discussing the I-864 Affidavit of Support. We're going to cover all the pressing questions you have on this topic, so make sure you stay tuned till the end. Just a quick disclaimer, this conversation is for informational purposes only, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. So let's get right into it, Dia. Let's talk about a general overview of the I-864 Affidavit of Support. What's the primary purpose of this Affidavit of Support? Can you give us some insight on that? Sure, Ariana. So anytime you sponsor a foreign national for immigration to the U.S., you have to demonstrate that the foreign national will not end up being public charge in the U.S., right? So for employment-based or investment-based applications, usually it's not required uh, that you show a separate financial support attestation because that's already taken care of in the, you know, the employment-based or the investment petition. On the other hand, with certain applications which are family-based, you, you know, you, you do have to show that uh, the foreign national will have adequate means of financial support in the U.S. and are not likely to become a public charge. So that's where the affidavit of support comes in. It serves as a contract between the petitioner sponsor, the U.S. government, and the foreign national and confirms that the person will have sufficient means of income in the U.S. So in some cases, it is necessary. That's helpful to know. So who exactly is required to submit this I-864 form as part of their immigration application? And then at what stage in the process of this do they submit this affidavit of support? Yes. So it is usually required at the final stage. For typical family-based application, it will be required either at the adjustment stage for people for foreign nationals who are already in the U.S. and are planning to do a status change at the end. And for those who are outside the U.S. doing consular processing, it will be at the stage of the NBC document collection, right? So that's when you need to supply the, the Form 864 to the U.S. government. Now, the foreign national is responsible for submitting the 864 application, and he, you know, he or she will need to procure it from the sponsor or co-sponsors is applicable. Uh, so really, there's no compulsion to provide this, but the case will not proceed unless this is submitted. That's really good to know that we have to look into this and take this into account and make sure we have this sorted when we're going through this process. So we talked about we have to to show that they're not going to be a public charge and, you know, they, they are financially responsible. So are there any minimum income requirements for a sponsor and how is this determined? Can you give us some insight on that? Yes. So the minimum requirement is that the person has to be a U.S. citizen. The sponsor has to be a U.S. citizen or a green card holder or a U.S. national. And these are defined terms, by the way. Should be at least 18 years of age and uh, should be living in the U.S. or should be domiciled in the U.S. You know, so that's actually a separate topic in itself. You know, how do you demonstrate domicile? But, you know, maybe we'll discuss that another day. The financial sponsor should also have annual income. And that's, you know, that is really what we need to examine mm -hmm. first. 
uh, should have annual income that is at least 125% of the federal poverty guidelines. The actual amount of income needed depends on the number of people in the household. And the more people you have in the household, the higher your income will need to be in order to meet the requirements for the affirmative support. That's really interesting to know. So so the more people you have in your household, the more income you have to be um, showing proof of. So can the intending immigrant use his or her own income to meet the financial requirements? Is that allowed? Yes, that is possible. So the intending immigrant or the beneficiary may use his or her income to meet the requirements. But that's only as long as the income is going to continue from the same source after the green card or the LPR status has been obtained. That's good to know. That's definitely something to take into account if you do want to use um, your income for this. So is it possible to also use like assets such as property or investments to meet the income requirement? Can we do that? And if so, how would one go about doing this? Yeah. So in many ways, it's easier to, you know, to meet the requirements using income because with income, you, you know, you, uh, the paperwork that you need to give is a little less, you know, like W-2s and things like that. But absolutely, the financial sponsor can use assets and not just income to meet the requirement. So assets typically would include cash, you know, cash in the bank, stocks, bonds, you know, real property, for example, a home, right? So the, the guideline is that in general, if you're using assets, then you need to show at least three times the amount, right? So if you need to demonstrate the household income of, let's say, 50000 keeping in mind the guidelines and everything, if that's the requirement, then, and you want to use assets, then you have to show three times of that. So instead of 50000 you have to show that you have assets worth 150000 And then in some situations, depending on the context, you also might have to show five times the amount. So that, you know, that you can, you know, depending on the type of case, uh, whether it's three times or five times, that will vary. Now, the other thing is that only assets which can be converted uh, to cash within a year, which can, you know, easily be converted, only those can be used. If you wish to include your home, for example, you know, typically you would include, you provide your title documentation. You have to get a formal appraisal done from a licensed appraisal. And you have to give evidence of any amount of the loans that are on the, the home. So you have to subtract, you know, the value of any outstanding loans, etc. You can also use like a car, you know, automobiles. But then if that's the only vehicle you have, you cannot use that. It has to be a second car or something like that. That makes sense. So we do have a, f- a few other options. If you know we want to use property or assets, we can, but we're probably going to have to have a lot of assets to use that to, to make up for, for the cash that we don't have to present. So it looks like we have quite a few options to be able to meet these income requirements. What happens in the case the sponsor cannot meet the income requirements? Do they have alternative options for these situations? Yes, it's not the end of the road if the sponsor, the petitioner does not meet the income income requirements. Of course, the petitioner has to, you know, even if the petitioner does not meet the income requirements, they still have to give an 864. But along with that, the petitioner can use a co-sponsor, a giant sponsor. Now, a co-sponsor would also need to meet the requirements, the same requirements, eligibility requirements in terms of being a U.S. citizen or a permanent resident or a U.S. national be at least, uh, at least 18 years of age, etc. And the good thing is a joint sponsor does not have to be related, you know, doesn't have to have any relationship, family relationship to the petitioner or to the intending immigrant. Anybody uh, willing to sign up for this 
obligation can sign up as a joint sponsor. And so the joint sponsor will sign a separate um, 864 form. Now, if if you have a household member who is willing to combine resources with a sponsor, then the form to use would be the 864A. And this is when the sponsor's income and assets independently do not meet the requirements for the 864. So typically in this situation, the spouse, parent, child, or um, you know any sibling relative who lives in the same house as the sponsor can you know can uh, sign up to be the uh, to sign the 864A. And so that's, you know, that's how we proceed when the sponsor, the petitioner by himself or herself does not meet the income requirement. That's great. So we do have a few more options when when one person can't solely meet it. If they have somebody else in their household who can partner with them and then together jointly they can meet the income requirements, then we have that option. So that's really great to know. Um, you know, if there is somebody else who can support you in this process, if you can't meet the income requirements alone, definitely look into the I eight sixty four A form and and see how you can go about doing that to to sponsor that person and make sure you do meet the income requirements. So let's get into a little bit about the legal obligations and the implications of this form and being the sponsor. So could you touch a little bit on the legal obligations of the sponsoring U.S. citizen or the lawful permanent resident when they're filing the I-864? Yes, absolutely. The sponsor's obligation is not to be taken lightly. I think it used to be that people would sign off on these documents because you want to help the foreign national come in. But uh, keep in mind that this is a contract. It is a legal document that you're signing, and it serves as a contract between the sponsor, the intending immigrant, and the U.S. government. So basically, when you sign an 864 or an 864A, you are signing up to support the foreign national and make sure that the foreign national will not end up uh, being a public charge in the U.S., right? So... And this obligation continues until the immigrant, the sponsored immigrant, becomes a U.S. citizen or can be credited with 40 qualifying uh, quarters of work um, in the U.S. So that's, the um, you know, a tax, a social security calculation. But 40 quarters is usually 10 years. And so you are, you know, pretty much on the hook until for that long unless the person has become a U.S. citizen. Now, this obligation ends upon uh, is discharged if the sponsor or the uh, beneficiary passes away. And uh, it is also important to note that divorce or a legal, separ uh, legal separation will not end the sponsorship obligation. The other requirement, and uh, people are not always aware of this or don't always remember this, but in the event of a change of address, a sponsor is required to file a notification with the USCIS informing them of the change of address. And the form uh, to use for this is the I-865. So that's the sponsor's change of address form. And that should be submitted to USCIS within 30 days of moving. Just like how we would file a form AR-11 for other situations involving an address change. Those are really helpful points, Dia. I'm so glad you mentioned, you know, what happens when somebody passes away, if you if you separate with the partner or, you know, change of address and, and things to do in those cases. So that's really helpful to know and, and good to keep in mind um, when we're going through this process. So speaking of the I-864, is it legally enforceable and are there any repercussions for sponsors who don't end up meeting their obligations? What does that look like? Yes, it's very much uh, enforceable. And people have become very aware of the rights available under the 864. 
So as I mentioned before, the 864 is a contract between the sponsor and the beneficiary. So the beneficiary, the, uh, the foreign national who's come in under the 864 or has benefited from the 864 can go to court and seek enforcement of the contract for essentials. And usually we see the sort of litigation happening in the context of uh, divorcing spouses. And uh, so a prenup agreement will not help you get out of the 864 obligations. So clients often ask us, hey, can we, you know, give the 864 but still have a term in the prenup agreement that, you know, we will not be required to support them. But no, the prenup will not excuse you from the 864 obligations. So in the past few years, we are seeing more litigation civil litigation involving enforcement of the 864 contract. So we talked a little bit about, you know, life changes like divorcing, somebody passing away and how that affects the I-864. What happens if, for example, the sponsor loses their job? In that case, what what does that look like for the I-864? So that's, that's a good question, right? And, you know, unfortunately, an 864 application, once it's submitted to USCIS, you can't really undo it. Now, if at all the sponsor has to withdraw it, it has to be withdrawn before the actual issuance of an immigrant visa to the intending immigrant. Once the foreign national has obtained a visa or a green card based on the 864 filing, the sponsor cannot back out of the 864 obligations. Now, your question was, what if there is a significant change in the sponsor's situation? Like if they go through a job loss or maybe a severe illness, medical condition, etc. Now, what happens in that, in that case? So, you know, we don't really have a lot of case law guidance on this, but if the sponsor experiences a significant deterioration in their health, you know, cannot work, and, you know, that's affecting their income, ability to work, etc., then you could potentially argue that this change in circumstances makes it uh, impossible for them to continue providing financial support under the 864. And especially if it's a you know situation where the, the foreign national, the, the intending immigrant who benefited from the 864 is actually capable of you know cap- uh, working and, and making a decent income. So if it's a you know very egregious situation like that, which affects the sponsor's ability to meet their own basic needs, then it could be argued that they, you know, that they should be excused from the 864 obligation. But we don't have a lot of case law. You know, we don't have a lot of guidance from USCIS or from the courts on this. Uh, we just have a few cases. So just, I think it's just prudent to assume that if you, once you sign the 864, you would be required to support the, the applicant until they become U.S. citizens or, you know, or they, you are discharged under the law. Thank you so much for going into detail about that, Dia. That's really helpful. I know, like you said, you know, there is no guide for for when these situations happen, but obviously based off of your experience, you've seen quite a few cases and, and what to do in those situations. So I appreciate you sharing your insight on that and and what to do in these situations when, you know, a big life change occurs and and we don't have what the sponsor had before, their their income levels and their ability to work. And then, you know, what do we do next? So I appreciate you sharing your insight on that. Regarding the document for this process. It's it's quite a lengthy process, I'm sure, and, and there are several documents needed for this. So that is why it's it's pretty important to work with your immigration attorney on this and make sure you do have the proper documents and everything is filed correctly to make sure the process goes as smoothly as possible. So speaking of all of these documents, what do we typically need to accompany the I-864 application? What kind of documents are we typically looking at? 
So it depends really on the type of income that the sponsor has. For a salaried person, we would usually show the W-2s, the last uh, you know few years worth of W-2s, tax returns. It's always good to have an, an employment verification letter, you know, which also states a salary plus a few recent pay statements. I would say the W-2s are very important because very often USCIS or the NBC will RFE for the W-2s if they're not uh, submitted. Even if you've given the tax returns, they will sometimes come back asking for W-2s. So W-2s and 1099s are very important. And yeah, you know, so if that documentation is clear, then usually, you know, that that's good enough. That's really helpful to know. Thank you for covering those documents. So you mentioned something earlier about um, household size and the role that it plays in the I-864 affidavit of support. Does does the only issue surround um, the idea of having to have the more income because of the, the number of people in your household? Can you dive into that for us a little bit? Yeah, so there is a chart. Actually, if you just, you know, look for poverty guidelines and immigration requirements, you will see that there is a chart and depending on the number of people in the household, the income requirement uh, needed to uh, support the affidavit of support that goes up. It's not a lot, but, you know, the calculation needs to be done accordingly. Also, in your tax returns, if you've claimed a lot of exemptions and you show that you're supporting a lot of people, basically, if you, you know, uh, shown a lot of people as, you know, being supported in your tax return, then you will have to take those numbers into consideration. So, you know, always read the uh, instructions. The Form 864 instructions are actually very helpful. And it says, for example, what line item you need to look at on a tax return for income level. So with the Form Easy uh, tax return, the Easy, if you use, it's a certain line item with the other regular tax filing returns. It's a different, uh, it's the net net in total income. So there are some uh, things to watch out for like that. And so just, you know, I would read the 864 instructions very carefully and see what kind of document and what line item you need to be referring to. That's great advice and insight, Dia. Thank you for mentioning the importance of the instructions. You know, a lot of us overlook the the most basic things. So it's good to know that we really have to pay attention to those. And of course, consult your immigration and tax professionals if you have any questions regarding these forms. So you did mention a little bit about certain types of visas don't require the affidavit of support. You said family-based visas typically do. What about like fiancé visas? I believe you said employment visas don't. Can you give us a little overview of that? Yeah, usually for employment-based petitions, you don't need uh, the 864. The only context in which you would need it for an employment-based petition is if the if there is a family relationship and you know the if, between the petitioner and the beneficiary, and if you know the beneficiary owns a certain you know amount in the business, etc. So usually for employment-based cases, the 864 doesn't feature. The 864 becomes important more for family-based I-130s, you know, where you're sponsoring a a sibling or a spouse, those are the, or, the, or a child, right? Those are the cases in which uh, you would need the 864. So that's why I said it's mostly for the family-based cases. With the fiancé visa, you don't have to give the 864 initially. After the person comes in on the fiancé visa, and within 90 days, they have to get married in the U.S. and then file the application for adjustment of status. So when you file the application for adjustment of status, after the person has entered using the fiancé visa, that is when you would file the 864 affidavit support. 
Thank you so much for sharing that with us. It's helpful to know which visas we need it for and which ones we don't. I know you've been doing this for quite some time, Dia, and you've have so much experience and you've, you know, filed so many of these. So what are some common errors that you have seen applicants and sponsors make when they're filling out the IA-64 form? What kind of insider advice can you give us to make sure we don't make the same errors when we're going through this process? Yeah, so the form itself is not the most it doesn't have the most logical layout. So sometimes it will ask for numbers, you know, in a couple of places. So make sure you enter the information correctly in all the fields. There is also, for example, it asks for tax returns and your income for the last three years. So for those two, you have to, as I mentioned before, depending on the kind of tax return that you file, you have to make sure that you choose the correct line item from the ta- from your tax return when denoting the income level. So that's, you know, one of the common, I guess, grounds where USCIS will sometimes issue an RFC. Then I guess it's the supporting documentation. As I said, you know, most people think that they just give the tax returns and the tax returns are conclusive. But USCIS still wants the W-2s. So always make sure to give the W-2s. And, you know, as I said, give the letter from the employer as well. That always helps. So, yeah. And then um, I've also seen some cases where people just forget to sign (laughs) the form. So I guess, you know, that's definitely something you could uh, avoid. Definitely the basics for sure. And then on top of that, all of the things you mentioned. So thank you for those insights, Dia. Would you be able to touch on why USCIS is issuing an RFE for the I-864 when the total income is above the poverty guideline or property guideline? Poverty guidelines, probably, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, that you know, I'm glad they asked this because very often, you know, you will have RFEs, right, from USCIS. And in fact, more than uh, USCIS, it's with the NVC, we see this, right? With the NVC, that's, you know, for people who are doing consular processing, somebody is the beneficiary is outside the US. And so you have to complete the document collection exercise with NVC. And so, you know, as part of that, you give the 864 and the supporting documents. Even if you give everything, they'll sometimes, you know, keep asking for more documents. And some of it is because maybe the, you know, the officer or the adjudicators, right, they're not really very well trained on these things. So even if the documentation is sufficient, right, or we think it's sufficient, they will still keep asking for more documents. They will also sometimes ask for an 864A. So an 864A, as I mentioned before, is uh, the contract with the household member. So in situations where the sponsors or the petitioner's income is not enough, they would need to rope in the household member, like a, you know, a spouse. And this is typical when there is, you know, a joint tax return file, right? The spouses, if they file jointly. So then they will ask for an 864A from the spouse. And then the pushback, you know, the sponsor is asking us, hey, you know, I make over, you know, 100,000 or whatever per year. Why are they still asking me to get something from my spouse. So oftentimes it's a training issue, but, uh, you know, you have to take the RFE seriously, RFE or, you know, NPC, you know, request for more documents and then respond appropriately. So if you're not very sure about this, it's always a good idea to get legal help or professional help from an attorney. Yes, thank you for covering that, Dia. Thank you for your LinkedIn question, whoever asked that. And thank you, Dia, for explaining you know, what to do in that situation. And definitely, if you have questions, please reach out to us anytime. You can send us an email at info at 
Thank you so much, Dia, for taking the time to share your insights and experience with us. This does bring us to the end of our conversation. So thank you, everyone. And to stay up to date, please subscribe and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And if you have any questions or suggestions, please email us anytime at info at and we'll be happy to help you out. Until next time, stay safe and take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our work, please visit our websites at www.chug.com for legal and immigration and www.chug.net for tax. Be sure to subscribe to get regular business insights from the Chug LLP team. 